Good morning, church. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to read the Bible for today. Can we all open our Bible to the um, Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 22? I'm going to read from verses 66 till 25th verse of chapter 23. And if any one of us do not have a Bible, there are Bibles available on the table at the back. You can grab one and that will be a gift for you from our church. St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verses from 26. Jesus before the council. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together and they brought him to their council. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. He replied, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from on, now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. All of them asked, are you then the Son of God? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him saying, we found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor and saying that he himself is the Messiah a king. Then Pilate asked, them, asked him, are you the king of the Jew? He answered, you say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man, but they were insisted and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee where he began even to this place. When Pilate heard, heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time. Because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Even Herod with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then he put an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate then called together the chief priest, the leaders, the people, and said to them, you brought me this man 
as one who was perverting the people. And here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod the... For he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Then they all shouted and together and away with this fellow, release Barabbas for us. This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate wanting to release Jesus addressed him again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave him verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. Uh, good morning, church. <clears throat> um, if you are new, my name is RJ. I'm the associate pastor here in Tungabi Baptist. A big, big welcome to you all. Um, as we said that we are going through the, <clears throat> a series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so keep your Bibles open uh, to that page. To that page. Um, and let me pray before I begin. Father, we ask that you will speak to us now. Speak to us with conviction and speak to us with encouragement that we may see the Lord Jesus in our lives. This we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, today we're looking at the, as we read, the trial of Jesus. When Jesus was really taken up to, to three, almost three different kind of courts, and where all, all charges are laid against him. Uh, and I think this is a really great passage to look at because nothing has, has changed. Uh, in a way, Jesus is still on trial today. His authority, his existence, his claims are still under heavy scrutiny uh, today in our society. And the charges laid against him still haven't changed. Um, the most well-known atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, wrote in his book, uh, God Delusion, he says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Uh, that's what he thinks of, of God. Uh, another well-known atheist, Sam Harris, said, the idea that Jesus could be born of a virgin, walk on water, rise from the dead, and perform miracles, and that only those who believe in him will be saved, is a real absurdity. 
And you don't need a well-known atheist to tell you what the world believes. Just watch TV or simply ask people on the streets and they will tell you that they pretty much think similarly. And if you ask them, well, what would make you believe? What will convince you of the God of the Bible or Jesus of the New Testament? Well, often they will say that if there is clear and convincing evidence, then I might believe. Because if there is, if God is real, if there is a God, why doesn't he prove himself better? Why doesn't he give us better evidence for me to believe? See, we demand God for evidence. And those, again, are the charges today against God. The lack of evidence in God's part. People want proof. We want proof. But the problem is people don't really want the truth. And as we can see in our story today, Jesus faces three different courts. And all are looking for some, types, some type of evidence different types of evidence, but as we will see, the, the evidence is not good enough for them. It's not what they need. And the three courts that we're going to look at will be our three main points for today. And so the three things that we're going to look at today are when Jesus is before the religious leaders, when Jesus is before Herod, and when Jesus is before Pilate. Okay? So three times he could have been freed, people could have believed in him, but three times he was failed. So let's begin. Firstly, Jesus before the religious leaders. So as we said last week, Jesus was betrayed. He was arrested during that night. Uh, in verse 54, we are told that in chapter 2, verse 54, that he was taken to the house of the high priest for questioning. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what happened that night, but the other gospels do. But what Luke does is that he jumps straight away to the next morning, verse 56, sorry, verse 66, when they've all gathered together to finalize the charges that they have against Jesus. So they met that night, and the next morning, they're finalizing everything. So it says that the whole council is assembled, meaning the whole Sanhedrin council, which is it's made up of 70 elders, plus the high priest. So there's a lot of people there. And it was the highest court for the law of Israel. Of, of, of Israel. And so really, all the big boys are, are in. And as we just read, the main accusation and question that they're asking Jesus is, hey, who are you? Who do you claim to be? And they're asking, not because they don't know who he claims to be, but their intention is to catch Jesus out. It's like when the police pulls you over and they ask you, hey, do you know why I pulled you over? Do, do you know what you did wrong? What they're trying to do is to make you admit the wrongdoing. Why? Because they can use your words against you. And here, because these religious leaders are doing the same thing, they said, tell us clearly who you claim to be. Because they're trying to get a confession out against him. And in this short conversation, we find three titles of who Jesus is. In here, he was called Christ, or the Messiah. He's called the Son of Man, and he's also called the Son of God. See, these three titles are related to each other, but let's quickly look at what they all mean. Firstly, Messiah, right? The first title for Jesus is Messiah. If you are the Messiah, tell us. Now, if you are new to Christianity, Messiah and Christ, right? Christ is not his last name. Christ and Messiah are the same thing. And it means, it means the anointed one. It means the chosen one. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the chosen one of God is the one who God promised to save the, the Israelites. 
And whoever this Christ or Messiah is, he is, he is expected to be in the line or, the, or in the lineage of David, of King David. So he needs to have a royal bloodline. And as a king, he's expected to come in with great power, with great military power, to help liberate the Israelites from whatever or whoever oppressing them. So the Israelites believe that this Savior is going to save them from the Roman rule at that time because the Romans are the ones oppressing them at that time. But since the religious leaders are not seeing any liberation from Jesus, they're convinced that Jesus is not the Messiah. But funny enough, the good thing for us is that throughout the gospel, throughout the gospel of Luke, that Luke has been very careful in trying to show us that Jesus is the promised Savior. For example, I'll just give you a couple. For example, right from the very beginning, when the birth of Jesus was first announced to Mary, the angel Gabriel said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And the angel said to the shepherds out in the field, for unto you born this day in the city of David, a Messiah who is Christ the Lord is born. Right? So that's the first title. Secondly, the Son of Man. And this is the title that Jesus often used for himself, the Son of Man. Now, it sounds kind of weird, like Son of Man. It's like a son, a child of a human being. But there is a special meaning behind this claim in the Old Testament, where the prophet Daniel saw a vision of this human being, the Son of Man, coming down from heaven with full of glory and power and having the power to judge the world. And it says this in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven that there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the prophet Daniel is saying that this person, though he is human, he will be treated like God. His glory is divine. That the prophet Daniel saw someone with divine power and glory having dominion over the nations. Right? So it was a vision of a divine ruler and judge. And any Jewish leaders at that time will be very, very aware of this claim because it's quite unique. And this is why in verse 69, Jesus said, from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Because again, to sit at the right hand of God means to have the divine authority and power to make the judgment. Jesus is claiming to have rule over all the earth, right? It's a big claim. And so immediately after he said this, the next leading question is, if you're saying that you are the Messiah, if you're saying that you are the Son of Man, are you saying then that you are the Son of God? Right? And this is why in verse 70, just to make sure that they're clear on what Jesus is claiming to be, he, they're, they're really asking, are you the Son of God? Right? Are you the same, are you in the same level as the God of the Old Testament? And there is no bigger heresy in Judaism than to break the very first commandment that you shall have no other God aside from Yahweh. And here Jesus is not just claiming that there is another God. He's saying, I am God in flesh. Hence they said, 
we have all the confession that we need. We can take him to the, to, to the Supreme Court now. And so they managed to, in, to incriminate himself with, with, with blasphemy. Now, before we move on to the next trial, let's, let's apply this. Because in, in verse 67, again, the religious council, they're not, they're not really asking for physical evidence which is what Herod is going to ask later on. But they're asking for logical reason. They're saying, if you are the promised Messiah, then prove it to us using scripture, using logic. Remember, these are well-versed religious leaders. Hence, Jesus' answer, well, if I try to tell you, if I try to prove it to you, you won't believe me anyway. If, if I try to question you, he says, you're not going to answer. He's saying, what's the point? Not because my arguments are flawed, but because you've made up your mind already. Jesus, Jesus is saying, there's no point of debating and arguing with, with you because you're, going to, to, you're not going to change your mind anyway. Because Jesus knew that some people are not really searching for truth, but they just want to find ways to deny the truth. See, these religious leaders, they've been following Jesus they, since the start of his ministry. It means that they've heard his sermon. They've seen the miracles. Hence, they're not asking for another miracle. Yeah, he has given enough miraculous evidence. And, they, and did not, they did not believe what they saw back then. And if they did not believe his works, why would they now believe his words? See, the problem is not the lack of evidence, but a refusal to accept the evidence given before them. Why is that? Why is it hard to believe even if there is proof? Well, here's why. Because it's so hard to accept the title. Do you see that in every one of those titles, it's a title of authority. It means you have to submit to his authority. Messiah, means, which means that you have to submit that you need a savior and only he can save. You can't save yourself. Son of man. Meaning that you don't judge him, he judges you. He sits at the right hand. He's the judge. Son of God, meaning you're not in charge of your life. He is. Jesus is God, and you're not. And so even though the religious leaders have enough evidence, they don't have enough humility to submit to this person that they have arrested so easily. They can't submit to someone who looks so weak and helpless. That Christianity can make great logical sense, but logic alone will not convert people. And I always tell people it's, you know, it's difficult to convert people by just arguing with them. Because the mind will only believe what the heart is willing to believe. Even though, even though there's enough evidence, they won't buy it unless there's a change of heart. And that's why evangelism, that's why the, the, the work of God is the work of God. In a way, faith only happens in the heart before it happens in the mind. A conviction of the heart needs to happen first before it becomes logically uh, viable. And because the religious leaders are too arrogant to believe, they refuse to believe what is clear to them or what makes sense to them logically. Let's move to the second trial. Jesus before Herod. So the religious leaders are convinced that Jesus should get the death penalty and, and because of blasphemy. But since the Jews were under Roman occupation, they did not have the right to execute capital punishment. 
And this is the reason why in chapter 3, chapter 23, verse 1, they brought him to Pontius Pilate. Now, before we look at Pilate, I just want to jump to Herod because as we read earlier, Jesus kind of goes to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate later on. So we'll, we'll deal with Pilate later on. Um, and under Roman law, a person uh, could either be tried in the place that they were accused or in the place where they are from. And it says there that since Jesus is from Galilee and it just happened that Herod, Antipas, the, the son of Herod the Great, uh, the ruler that includes the province of Galilee, was in Jerusalem. So Pilate, the governor, the governor thought that, well, since he's under Herod's jurisdiction, let him deal with him. And surprisingly, in verse 8, we're told that Herod was happy to see Jesus because for a long time he had been wanting to see him from what he had heard about him. He hoped to see him perform some sort of a sign or miracle. That Jesus was famous for doing miracles, especially in Galilee where he's from, where he, remember, where he fed the 5,000, in Galilee where he, ra where he raised the, the dead girl back to life, uh, in Galilee where he cast out uh, legions of demons and put them in, in pigs. Now, finally, Herod had a chance to see for himself what Jesus could do. But verse 9, he asked Jesus many questions. He's probing him, but Jesus didn't give him any answers. He's hoping to see some kind of, of a miracle. He wanted to be bedazzled. But when Jesus refused to perform any tricks, Herod was greatly disappointed. Verse 11, Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him instead, dressing him in an elegant robe. Maybe, Pilate, maybe uh, Herod owns that robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. They started making fun of him instead. One way or the other, he wanted Jesus to entertain him. He's not really wanting to know if Jesus is God. He just wants to see if Jesus can fix his boredom. He is not after truth. He's after a performance. He, and after he got tired of Jesus, of, of ridiculing him, he sends him away once again. And I was just thinking, you wonder how many people look for Jesus just wanting to be entertained as well. Maybe like Herod, they, they ask for some miraculous evidence. And if they don't get it, they ridicule how stupid Christianity sounds. And it's common for people to seek out religion out of boredom. But the other problem is, the other problem is, and it's a major problem, is that churches often gives them the performance and the spectacle that they're craving for. And so a lot of people stay for the performance. People stay in church because church is entertaining. It's enjoyable. It helps with their social life. And it keeps them busy and they, it, it feels like they're needed. But once they find something better to do on a Sunday morning, they get bored of it and they move on to the next best thing. So for some people, Jesus or Christianity or religion in general is for, is for their own amusement. And sadly, churches are feeding these cravings instead of giving them what is, true, what is true and what is real. And I hope that's not, that's not us. And I hope that's not you. I'm sure you're not here because there's nothing left to watch in Netflix, right? Because we are told that Jesus did not say a word because he's not here to entertain. He's not even wanting to argue or debate because he knows the argument will be entertaining for Herod. And so Herod saw no evidence he heard no defense. Instead, he only saw how weak, how vulnerable, and how ridiculous Jesus is. To him, Jesus is really a nobody, but just somebody to make fun of. He's entertaining. 
But little did he know that Jesus' silence is not, is not weakness, but it is because of his strength to fulfill what he came to do. That in Isaiah 53 says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He remained silent because his purpose is not to fix people's boredom. He came to solve a bigger existential problem today, which leads us to our third point, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. You know, as mentioned earlier, the religious leaders, they took Jesus to the local government because they, they had no political power to put Jesus to death. And they knew that the local government has no vested interest in the Jewish religion. And so they had to present a political problem before Pilate. They can't just say, hey, here's Jesus. He's breaking the first commandment. Rome does not care. Hence the accusation in verse 2. We have found this man sub subverting our nation, not religion, our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. The government does not care about your religion as long as it doesn't interfere with their power to govern. And the religious party knew that if there is one thing that Pontius Pilate could not and would not tolerate, it's someone claiming authority over his territory. And so they said, the Jewish leader said, here's Jesus, and he's, he's trying to take your job, and he's trying, he's claiming to be king. And he's even going against the taxation system, right? Because we, we have, you know, we hate nothing more than people not paying their taxes. And so Pilate's question is not a religious question, but it's a political one. Are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? He's really asking, are you making a political claim? Right? Yes or no? And this is why, really, Jesus gave a vague answer. Because on one hand... On one hand, he, he can't just say yes. Because if Jesus says yes, yes, I'm, a political, I'm making a political claim. Then he's saying that I'm starting a rebellion. I would raise an army and I will go against Rome. Right? And then that will be treason and sedition. And, and he will be charged with that. But that's not true. But if Jesus says, no, I'm not political. Then he will be saying, I'm, I'm just here as a spiritual person. My movement is about personal peace. It's to keep religion private, and it doesn't affect the public life. I'm only here for people's personal and private happiness. That won't be true either. Because Jesus always says that to make your faith public, express it publicly, to live it out. So it's hard for Jesus just to, to answer yes or no. And I think this is the dilemma we have today as well in our society. Isn't, isn't this how the government kind of treats Christianity today? That society is happy for you to, to keep your religion but they will say, but keep it to yourself, right? Don't, don't let your religion affect your, your public life, the public arena. Don't bring it out in the open. Don't create a movement that will offend people and disturb the peace. And that's why it's, it's so hard to engage as a Christian. Because on one side, as Christians, our, our job is not to control the government. Our job is not to create a movement that will control politics and the society. We're not called to overthrow the government. We're, we're not called to, to impose religion, uh, religious law, and make people abide it with force. Because even Jesus didn't make that his mission. But at the same time, Christianity is not a private religion. 
if Jesus says who, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we are to follow him the way he calls us to follow him, then it will affect every area of our lives. It will affect the way you work. It will affect the way you parent. It will affect the way you vote. It will affect the way you spend your money. It will affect the way you drive even. It affects everything. It means sometimes people will be offended. It means that there will be confrontations. It means like Jesus will, will get into situations where people will be asking, are you going against society? Are you going against authority? Are you engaging politics with your religion? Are you being political? Because the Christian faith is a belief system that starts with a personal and private transformation. And, and that individual person, that individual um, person can transform a community and a community can transform a nation. And it is not done by force and power. It is done through conviction mixed with humility, love, and sacrifice. That if Jesus is king, then there will be times where we have to, to say and speak like Peter in Acts. We need to obey God and not men. If Jesus is king, then there are times like Paul where we're compelled to go against society and be willing to face death for the sake and love for others. The mission of Jesus is not political. It is beyond that. It is personal with uni universal implications. And here's the irony in the story. Here's Pilate really asking Jesus, are you the king? Are you a political threat? Do, do I have to submit to you? And clearly Pilate can see that Jesus doesn't have an army behind him, behind him nor power. And so he's, he says, he's innocent, let him go. He's, he's a nobody, he's nothing. And it was tradition for the governor to release a Jewish prisoner during Passover. We're not, we're not sure why. Some people say that it's because it's a symbol of the exodus in Egypt where the people of God were released from, from bondage or prison. So then the governor, governor kind of does the same thing. And so Pilate will freeze whichever prisoner the people ask for. And it seems that Pilate was really hoping that they would ask for Jesus because he doesn't, because he doesn't see him as a threat. But verse 18, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now, I find it really hard, as, as Mark mentioned earlier, that, that the crowd turning against Jesus when not so long ago, just in chapter 19, the whole crowd welcoming Jesus to Jerusalem and calling him king. How did the crowd turn so quickly in just a matter of a week? Now, we're not told why exactly, but a couple of things to consider. Firstly, remember that Jesus was expected to be the Messiah, the, Messiah, the Savior. And so perhaps I'm assuming that as he, as he enters Jerusalem, the city of God, the capital of worship, the crowd was expecting him at that time to overthrow Rome and bring in some political restoration right then. But as soon as they realize that he has no power to do so, and together with the accusations of the religious leaders, they quickly turned against him. Right? They changed their minds the way we quickly change our minds when politicians don't deliver with their promises. Right? We vote for them one day, and then the following week, like, no, we don't like them. And the other reason is mob mentality or herd mentality. Uh, there's, a, there's a popular research in psychology that proves 
that people are highly influenced, highly influenced by the, by the majority. Uh, one research is called the Solomon's, uh, Solomon's Asich line test during the 50s. Uh, what they did is that they put different groups of people in a room and they were told to judge which is the longest line, right? Very simple question, A, B, or C, but they are to give their answer aloud. Now, it's quite obvious that what the longest line is, but in the group, everyone is, a, is an actor and there's only one person that's being experimented on, being tested on. So all the accomplices will give the wrong answer. They would say C. And when it comes to the, to the person being tested, the test reveals that about 80% will also give the wrong answer just because they start to feel that they are wrong, even though it's very obvious that they're very convinced that they, that they are right. That people will be willing to compromise the truth in order to follow the crowd. And I believe... I might be speculating, but I believe that there's a good handful of committed followers in the crowd when Jesus was on trial. But because everyone is yelling, crucify him, they probably just joined in or they kept quiet. That when Jesus entered Jerusalem, they, they are the majority voice, that they're happy to voice it out, praise Jesus as king. But once he's being accused, they suddenly kept quiet because they are now the minority. And I think a lot of Christians are only brave when they are the majority. That a lot of people in a Bible study group are very vocal about their conviction and how everyone else in the world is wrong simply because they are the majority in the room. But once they can see that they're alone and the crowd is going against their Lord, most Christians will quickly turn away even if they know, even if they know that they're right. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a religious joke during lunchtime at work, and you're compelled to, to laugh like everybody else because everybody's laughing at the joke. Maybe it's a conversation of how, of the absurdity of, of the Christian belief in a university class and everyone is mocking the Christian argument and you just agree with them because you're the only Christian there. Or maybe it's a conversation with a group of friends during dinner and you have to tone down your belief or your conviction about Christian morality. We might not yell out, crucify him, but our silence does not, does not support him either. Who put Jesus on the cross? Is it the religious leaders accusing him of heresy? Is it Herod wanting to see a miracle? Is it Pilate who wants to let him go, but instead listen to the crowd? Or is it the crowd turning against Jesus? Notice this, that throughout the passage, you know, Jesus has been very vocal throughout the Gospels. But what we really see is Jesus not hardly speaking at all. And if he does, it's quite vague. And, and really, Jesus not defending himself. That he was very submissive. Before the religious leaders, he, did not, he didn't brag that he is the son of God or, or, or gotten into a spiritual debate. Before Herod, he remained silent and didn't give him any miraculous performance. Before Pilate, he could have summoned a spiritual army and proved his supremacy as king but he was submissive. Not because he was weak or powerless or a fraud. Four times in our passage, it was mentioned that Jesus is innocent. Four times it says that he's done nothing wrong, deserving death. Because that is exactly the point. He was innocent 
and yet he did not defend himself. Because he's doing something only he can do. He's giving himself. He's sacrificing himself so that verse 25 can happen for all of us. It says that Pilate released the man who has been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. See, the crowd wanted Barabbas, Barabbas, because at least Barabbas is clearly against Rome, right? Release Barabbas because he's against Rome and, 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 and possibly even killed someone to get the job done. The people wanted someone who clearly is fighting for them. They're thinking, yes, he's a murderer, but at least he's murdering for my freedom. But they didn't realize that Jesus is doing something better. That he was giving himself so that you can be free. And not just free from political and economic oppression. He came to give you freedom from sin. He died so that you can be forgiven. Barabbas killed trying to gain freedom, but was imprisoned, Jesus surrendered his power and was killed so that you can gain freedom. The story is clear that Jesus is innocent and Barabbas is guilty, but they let the guilty free and killed the innocent person, not because of injustice, but because the Son of Man was judged instead of judging. And so now forgiveness and freedom and reconciliation and restoration is only available. It's only possible because Jesus Christ took the stand. He faced the trials instead of you. And if you believe that he has done that for you, like Barabbas, you will find freedom only through him. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. As it, this passage leads us to Good Friday and Easter, Lord, help us to continually reflect of your, of your wonderful love, of your great sacrifice. Again, Lord, we cannot comprehend what that really feels uh, for us. But Lord, help us to have at least a glimpse of your, of your incredible love for us so that we will be willing to submit, not because of good logical argument, but because of what we can see of what Christ loved for us, took him, that he was willing to suffer and die for our sake. This we pray in his name. Amen.